0: What's up, everybody? My name is Dimitri Kafinas, and you're listening to Hidden Forces, a podcast that inspires investors, entrepreneurs, and everyday citizens to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about the systems of power shaping our world. My guest in this episode of Hidden Forces is best-selling author and renowned historian, economist, and theorist of generational change, Neil Howe. 25 years ago, Neil and his co-author William Strauss put forward a provocative new theory of American history. Looking back over the last 500 years, they'd uncovered a distinct pattern. Modern history moves in cycles, each one lasting roughly 80 to 100 years, with each composed of four eras or turnings that always arrive in the same order and each last about 25 years. The last of these eras is always the most perilous. It's a period of civic upheaval and national mobilization as traumatic and transformative as the New Deal and World War II, the Civil War, or the American Revolution. The authors called it the fourth turning, and Neil joins me today to explain why he thinks that fourth turning has finally arrived, what it means for those of us living during this period, and how his theory of generational change can help us navigate it with courage, competency, and a newfound sense of resiliency that may seem unimaginable to us today. Neil and I spend the first hour of our conversation laying the foundation for this theory, discussing the four different seasons of the secular, as well as the four different generations that propel it forward. We spend the second hour applying that framework to the fourth turning itself. We discuss what it would take to consolidate our society and what an existential threat to our nation's survival will look and feel like, and what we can do to prepare ourselves for this great national challenge that will draw all other problems into it and require the extraordinary mobilization of most Americans. If you want access to that part of the conversation and you're not already subscribed to Hidden Forces, you can join our premium feed and listen to the second hour of today's episode by going to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe. All of our content tiers give you access to our premium feed, which you can listen to on your mobile device using your favorite podcast app, just like you're listening to this episode right now. If you want to join in on the conversation and become a member of the Hidden Forces Genius Community, which includes Q&A calls with guests, access to special research and analysis, in-person events and dinners, you can also do that on our subscriber page. And if you still have questions, feel free to send an email, to info at hiddenforces.io and I, or someone from our team, will get right back to you. And with that, please enjoy this incredibly inspirational and enlightening conversation with my guest, Neil Howe. Neil Howe, welcome to Hidden Forces. Dimitri,
1: it's great to be here.
0: It's great having you on, Neil. And congratulations on the publication of your new book, The Fourth Turning is Here. I think this is like a quarter century in the making, the previous fourth turning I believe was published in 1997, co-authored by you and William Strauss. I'm curious to ask you how developed this field was, this field of generational theory, before you guys wrote your book in the late 1990s, because it's a theory that you guys are both so closely associated with today. Who else was talking about or writing about the subject at the time that you guys took interest in it?
1: Yes, and it really did not exist. The basic cornerstone of the theory kind of laying out a lot of its building blocks was an earlier book that Bill and I wrote called Generations, which is basically a, a series of collective biographies of American generations going all the way back to the early 17th century. And that came out in 1991. And really that was when you know we wrote about it in the late 1980s. And at that time, almost no one in america was talking about generations generations and you won't be surprised to hear me say this dmitri generations is itself a generational phenomenon that is to say you know when we get interested in generations right in the late 1960s and early 1970s everyone in america talked about generational differences there was a famous generation gap there were books called you know clash of generations it was obvious you had coming of age boomers railing against the greatest generation that you know built post-war America and it was a big deal. And any boomer who was coming of age at the time knew it was a big deal. And then later in the, in the late 1970s, I don't know, maybe with the death of Disco or something like that, it sort of just fell into abeyance and no one really talked much about it. Gen X was coming of age, the culture turned in a new, new wave, new direction. And people were silent. We kind of resurrected it, really drawing upon our own lifetime experiences and our own fascination with generational change. And, and just this is something we might want to talk about. But our original interest, you know, Bill's interest, my interest was initially in generational differences and generational change, not so much in anything having to do with the you know, cycles of history. That came later.
0: Well, what was the major contribution that you guys made to the field in the 80s and 90s when you wrote Generations and the Fourth Turning?
1: Well, what we did was that we discovered as we went back and we we wrote this long history of a sort of generational history of America that first of all, generational awareness goes way back in American history. It's not something new, which was originally discovered after World War II with boomers, but rather um, it goes all the way back to the very origins of America. In fact, it goes all the way back to modernity itself. It really goes back throughout all of the modern centuries since the um, Reformation and, and the Renaissance. Talking about new generations coming of age with new ideas and, and new ways of thinking about the world, and people aware of these differences. And the other thing we noticed is that even starting with the the so-called Puritan generation that came here and in in massively migrated to New England in the 1630s, that. What we found was that certain types of generations always followed other kinds of generations. In other words, there was a pattern in the way generations follow each other. For example, following a um, on a very idealistic generation, you know, we associate with boomers being um, very idealistic about how the world works, having a very comfortable upbringing, and being very demanding of how institutions should change this new set of ideals. We practically always see the emergence of a generation that is deemed to be cynical, pragmatic, almost a concerted reaction to that, right? Sort of the, the Boomer Xer pattern. But this is not new in American history. We, you know, following the generation of, of Abraham Lincoln and the Transcendentals came the, the gilded generation, you know, given the name by, by Mark Twain and his co-author and uh, personified by Custer and uh, Ulysses Grant a generation of metal and muscle, just a completely different collective persona, and so on with yet others, right? There was a pattern, and it was through that discovery of a pattern that we linked it up to a pattern in the structure of history itself. One mystery and curiosity about American history is that we seem to have these huge periods of of civic upheaval, mobilization, and reconstruction about every 80 or 90 years, right? About the length of a long human life apart. Uh, we had the um, the glorious revolution in the late 17th century, the, the major colonial period of, of revolt and revolution and war. And then about a lifetime later, we had the American Revolution, which of course set the United States off as a new country, And then again, another human lifetime, we had the American Civil War, and then another period like that, we had the Great Depression, World War II, and now here we are, right? We're we're in another period like that again today. And roughly halfway in between those great sort of civic events, we have the great awakenings of American history. And what's really interesting here, Dimitri, is that there's kind of a yin and yang relationship here. In the civic events, we remake the outer world of politics, economics, infrastructure, how we live with each other in the world. And in the awakenings, we remake the inner world of religion, literature, culture, values. As we, we use the word today, values. Every boomer knows that word, right? So that was interesting to us. And, and that actually is the key to another thing which is associated, I'd say another attribute of our thinking, which is associated with us, and that is this sort of fourfold typology of periods and generational archetypes.
0: Yeah. So I want to get into all of that. One last question, Neil, before we get into the framework or kind of delineate it more clearly and all the the four different archetypes and that that drive each turning. I'm curious what it feels like for you, because I imagine that when you published the book in 1997. That you didn't expect. Actually, I don't know what you expected. I'd be curious to know what you expected the reaction to be. Because you this was right as the, the dot-com bubble was just beginning to gain steam and traction. So I don't necessarily imagine you would have expected to get, you know, like a resounding reception for a book that basically said, Hey, hold on a second, times are really good, but just around the corner, things can change, winter is coming. So I'm curious to know what people's reaction was to the book, but I'm also curious to know what it's been like for you to watch this book become kind of like a cult classic, and I would say even more popular later in its lifetime than it was when it first came out.
1: It's been kind of extraordinary, and you're right. When we published the book, America was becoming steadily more optimistic. We were pulling out of a you know, Clinton's first term was you know, impacted by 1994 and sort of Newt Gingrich, the Republican takeover, and a lingering recession in the early '90s. But as we moved into 1996, 1997, there was a, a just a growing optimism, right? And the whole idea that we had a number of predictions about how we might be moving into a new era of crisis, starting you know sometime in the in the middle of the 2000-2010 decade. Which seemed, you know, a ways away at that point. Um, we had a number of scenarios which we could talk about if you want. Many, many of which have actually come to pass. And people thought that that was just outlandish. I mean, we predicted, for instance, well, we could have a, a WMD attack on on New York with airplanes. We predicted uh, a pandemic. We predicted a budget crisis, you know, uh, led by like, Tea Party members and so on. And I think we also predicted a. Um, a Russian invasion of previous Soviet states, we made these as not so much predictions, but just exemplary scenarios, right? I mean, obviously we were just saying, here, here are five things that could happen. And they seemed outlandish to people at the time. Remember, this was the era of the Cold War was over. Francis Fukuyama's end of history seemed to be dominant. Uh, markets were flourishing. Individualism wa- had triumphed and governments seemed to be fading away. All the great struggles, all the great battles of history seemed to be over. And the microchip, as both uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. And, and Bill Clinton were all saying, was going to undermine and overthrow authoritarians all over the world, right? And that was the future. And we said, no, that's really not how it works. So you're right. It it uh, yeah it got a well it got an interested audience I think a curious audience when it first came out, but as we begin to see the hits uh, later on to America, really starting in 2008 and then 2016 with the uh, you know Clinton Trump election and then with the pandemic, this very belated uh, popularity of the book sort of come into its own.
0: Yeah, I think one of the values of what you've done here is that you give people a story. And in fact, I do feel like, because I've listened to a lot of your interviews, Neil, in preparation of this conversation, and I read the book as well, and it feels like there's a sermonizing quality to how you approach this. In your book, you quote Young, you quote Joseph Campbell. So there's also an appreciation for the power of mythology and storytelling as a framework for helping galvanize people and society towards a higher calling. So I think, I think it's incredibly valuable in a way that isn't necessarily like the kinds of frameworks that people are familiar with. So, speaking of frameworks, I mean, you kind of alluded to it in the beginning of your response, but I would like to just make sure that for anyone who isn't familiar with it, that we give it its due here. There are four turnings. There's the initial turning, like, again, we can think about various examples in history, but we can we can look to the most recent turning just to give people an initial idea of what we're talking about here. The first turning of the most recent cycle was the 1950s and 60s. It's a It was an upbeat era of strengthening institutions and weaking individualism when a new civic order implanted and an old values regime decayed. That first turning is driven by a generation that grew up in the previous seculum. I don't know how you would describe it, but in that case, it was the it would have been the Silent Generation, presumably, and as well as the, the um as well as
1: the GI generation. The, the that, GI that, generation, yeah. That then you have the, the war, second
0: huh? turning. That's the awakening. It's the the area of the era of spiritual upheaval when the civic order comes under attack from a new value reg- regime. This would have been the sixties and seventies. Um, The third turning is an unraveling. It's a downcast era of strengthening individualism and weakening institutions when that very old civic order decays and that new values regime that came into being during the awakening in plants. And then you have the fourth turning, which is a crisis, which is the period that we're in now. And it's a decisive era of secular upheaval when the new values regime propels the replacement of the old civic order with a new one. And in all of those, we have four different generations. We have the profit generation, which would have been the boomers. The um, nomad generation, which would have been Generation X, the sort of latchkey generation that we covered in our episode with Gene Twangy, along with all the other generations. The hero generation, which is a really interesting... I mean, yes, the GIs, we all think about them as heroes, but it's interesting to imagine that actually us millennials are supposed to be heroes. And then you have the artist generation, which you call the homelanders. People associate them with Generation Z. What's also interesting about your book is that you have different timelines for which generation is which I just gave a really really simple concise sort of overview of what that is I would love for you to fill in any gaps and then we can begin to apply that to think about you know where we are how we got here where we're going and, and uh, what all that's going to feel like because that's what I think is the most compelling and interesting part of your book today you know in this year 2023.
1: Yes, and each of those generations you talked about were simply the generations coming of age, right? They were they were moving from childhood into adulthood during those periods, and each of them has is represented today and in, in America certainly in politics. The Silent Generation were the the children of the Great Depression and World War II. They were just too young to participate as adults in the war, and as it turned out later on, just too young. To be free spirits during the consciousness revolution, right? They already had married, you know, they got married, they had jobs, so they were kind of awkwardly in the middle of the generation gap. That generation has always had a very awkward relationship with history. They were never the right age, right? They were just too young for the war, they were just too old for the (laughs) for Woodstock. And they've been a great generation of listeners and moderators of compromisers and mediators. And Interestingly enough, this generation, and, and and I should say this type of generation, has a very um, weak le- record for political leadership, meaning no one really turns to them for decisive leadership. And in fact, had Biden not been elected, that generation would have never had a president. It's, it's interesting to think about. We completely leapfrogged that generation in the presidency when we went from George Bush senior, who as we all know, was a fighter pilot during World War II, albeit a very young one, just at the very end of that generation, born in 1924, to a boomer, right? Born after the war, Bill Clinton, born in 1946. And we never chose that generation again. We, we never went back. We we just sort of leaped over it. Kind of interesting. It turns out that there are such a thing as dominant political generations in history, in in American history and the GI generation was certainly one of them. The GI generation who came of age voting for FDR in the 1930s with incredible majorities estimated over 80% of that generation first time voters in 1932 and 36 voted for FDR. Everyone associated them with the New Deal. They went on to uh, be the uh, great foot soldiers and a personnel that, that won World War II, conquered half the world and they largely identified with rebuilding America after the war was over and they became a very dominant generation politically the first member of that generation to run for the presidency was tom dewey who ran in in 1944 the last president was george bush senior who you know lost his attempt to be reelected in 1992 The last member of that generation to run for the presidency was Bob Dole in 1996. You think of 1944 to 1996, that's over 50 years, right, of major party candidates running for the presidency. And so they they ran just multiple times. I don't know how many major party candidacies they had, Dimitri, but it was probably something like 16, 17, 18. The silent generation, I believe, only had four. They had Mondale, they had Dukakis, they had John McCain, and they had Joe Biden. That's it, only one of them won, and I guarantee you we will never have another running. Right? So it's interesting too to think about generations as being strong and weak politically, but you have many generations participate in each of these turnings, right? I mean, there are people of all ages that play a role, and it's the, what we sometimes call the generational constellation, of the fourth first turning, when you think of the the fifties and you know late forties, fifties, early sixties, which gave it that personality, you had a um, you had the silent generation coming of age as young adults. You had the GIs kind of taking over power. You know, they see right mills called them the power elite. You know, coming into midlife, taking over American institutions, building dams and highways and you know research laboratories and weapons plants and all the rest, right. And then you had an older generation, the lost generation, the Truman and Eisenhower generation, which was just generally deferentially to brighter and smarter, younger people at that time. And after 1960, we barely heard about them at all, right? They sort of mm. just disappeared. And then of course you had the consciousness revolution and everything changed, right? A new set of generational persona came into the lamplight. Suddenly, boomers appeared. Right, they had been children during the high, and now they made their stage. They made their entry to the stage, and it was a very nois- uh, noisy, boisterous entry. Really, this was a generation that that spearheaded the most defiant youth awakening of the twentieth century, and everything that the GIs tried to perfect and build seemed to come to pieces. You know, under the onslaught. Right, we suddenly had. To, well vietnam war was lost so there was that demoralization and we had you know sex drugs rock and roll the rise of crime we had inner city riots we had riots on campus the entire culture in america seemed to turn toward individualism the cult of self you know which the gi generation found so hateful to its life mission of banding together in teams and cleaning up the world and so there was a very interesting process that happened in those years, when the GIs retired. I mean, the GIs were retirement age at that point. I mean, the oldest of them were born in 1901, so they were you know reaching age 65 in the in the late 60s, and they all, you know, they all had a record number of them had union jobs, and when they when they retired, they all just joined AARP, right? So suddenly, you know the the senior lobby suddenly became very important and they all started moving to Sun City and Leisure World. We suddenly had these huge communities for you know people to move to the Southwest and live in these hermetically sealed communities where uh, they were age restricted, by the way. So you, know, you didn't have to let young people move in and they could be sealed away from the boomer culture, which they found, frankly, hateful. And they could still leave their doors open. They could still, you know, be friendly to each other. And the GI generation liked to be with each other all their lives, and they liked to be with each other when they're retired. And they didn't particularly want to be with their kids. And so this generation, which coming of age, were the great junior citizens of America. Right? I mean, they they saved America. We had a new word that we applied to that same generation when they were entering old age, Dimitri, senior citizens, right? And we forget it's the same generation. We never called old people senior citizens before this generation entered that phase of life. And all other generations honored them and they basically proposed a trade. I'll tell you what, we'll take all this wealth that we built and you boomers don't particularly like. And uh, you'll give a large share of that back to us. And in return, we'll give you boomers dominance over the culture. So that's essentially what happened during the 1970s. All of the post-Vietnam fiscal dividend went to senior benefits. We, you know, we created Medicare, Medicaid. We had automatic indexing, COLA, Social Security. We even had double indexing for a while. We had this enormous surge of senior benefits. And we still labor fiscally, you know, under the sort of the tailwind of those agreements, right? But that was the trade off. And uh, by the early 1980s, when Ronald Reagan, I think he was badgered by, um, by his wife into doing this, but invited the Beach Boys to the White House. So that so the boomer domination of the culture was complete. And that was really typical of an awakening era, right? This is the new values regime that boomers brought in. And it's interesting to see now, Dimitri, that so many of the problems that we see in America, this obsession with values, uh, the culture wars, the polarization of American into values camps, I think by most estimations really started toward the end of this period. I mean, people date that fissure to the late 1970s, and boomers have always been a values-obsessed generation, as is all members of the profit archetype. We we call them the profit archetype because there have been many other generations in American history just like them. And they have been a polarizing generation. They they came of age excoriating the the values of their parents. They had their counterculture, right? And then in the 80s and 90s, they attacked each other, and then today they're trying to set an example, a values example, inculcate and teach their values to younger generations. But that is their persona. And one interesting thing about generations is that they do develop persona early in life collectively. And they continue to keep those kind of collective attributes as, as they grow older. You mentioned the, the unraveling, right? This third turning, I guess if you're keeping track of seasons, that would be the fall season, right? From summer to fall. And that is a period when individualism is triumphant. Institutions are discredited. I think it's fair to say that ever since, I think almost any American who's gone into a bookstore since the late 1980s sees that the most upbeat, optimistic books are about me, myself, and I, right? I can do anything. I can conquer everything. But all of our most downbeat books you see in the bookstore are about you know, the end of the family, the end of community, the end of politics. And that's because we've been living in this era. And that brings me to another point, Dimitri, and that is that the timescale is so vast, right? The, the cycle that we, <laughs> these are long tidal emotions, right? And what's very interesting is that if the entire cycle lasts a long human lifetime, The era that we're entering is always the era that is just being forgotten by the oldest people who are passing away. Right, so no one really remembers that era when we were entering it. Right, the last time we were in an era like that was the 1920s, when we found you know such a profound influence of sort of individualism dominating the culture. But we lived through it, and the 1990s was a was a decade of sort of liberation cynicism bad manners certainly individualism a very low or ebbing sense of of civic responsibility it was a decade of sort of celebrity circuses and and show trials you know you remember o j simpson well again if you look at a decades like that you you'd immediately recognize instead of the roaring 90s you'd recognize the roaring 20s or you'd recognize the 1850s, you'd recognize the 1760s. These are all very similar decades, manifesting some of the similar attributes. Now, history teaches us that these third turnings always end in fourth turnings. And in fourth turnings are in many, you could say the third turning is in many way the opposite of a first turning, right? Individualism triumphant, institutions discredited, but in a fourth turning is in many ways the opposite of an awakening. In awakening, the supply of order in society is very high, but the demand from order from the rising generation in particular is very low, right? is declining. We want less order. So an awakening is always about throwing off social discipline, social responsibility, all of these civic constraints, Letting people just live their own lives, not just in, only in the culture, you know, not necessarily doing your parents want you to tell you to do, your community tells you what to do, your neighbors tell you what to do, but also in the economy. Remember, at the end of the awakening was a period of deregulation and tax cuts. Let's throw off all the, the economic constraints. So in, in many ways, Dimitri, it, it encompassed both the left and the right. You know, they all participated in the awakening, Right. In the crisis era, in the fourth turning, we move in the opposite direction. That is to say, the society is supplying very little order. And yet, people alive at the time today, Americans today, particularly the rising generation, this time millennials, demand more order, right? And so it's a very different kind of era, right? And as a result, the fourth turning is all about the recreation of community. And in the awakening, it was all about the dissolution of community. And that's, that's really one of the big stories. And it's also the remaking of the outer world, not the inner world. But we can talk more about that if you wish.
0: Mm-hmm. I do, actually. I mean, you're, you're hitting on so many things that I found really interesting and compelling while reading the book. Let's go back to the unraveling. When did we first begin to see evidence of that unraveling occur? And what are some examples that you can point to?
1: You know, I think The Awakening finally lost steam in the late 70s, early 80s. Jimmy Carter turned out to be not a, he was it was sort of a product of The Awakening. A lot of boomers voted for him and then he lost popularity and Americans began to be somewhat frightened by double digit inflation. You know, he, he finally brought in Paul Volcker and the sort of feeling of dysfunction in America at the time. I think a lot of a lot of millennials, of course would have no memory of this, but it, it is interesting that if you look at polls indicating America's sense of panic about America, uh, that the only time that's you know comparable to you know the pandemic and the election of 2020, which I think millennials certainly do remember, was back in 1980, right back in 79,80. There's a real sense of panic about what was happening to America, particularly the the stagflation. No one understood the stock market dropped to valuations which no one had ever seen before. I, mean, I think most of the S and P at the time could just be scrapped and sold for scrap, and you know profitably liquidated. <laughs> just just incredible phenomena that we were noticing. And then the Ronald- Iranian
0: hostage crisis as well.
1: Exactly the Iranian hostage, the, the the yellow ribbons. So a sense of real despair. Jimmy Carter called it malaise in a famous speech at the time, which certainly cheered no one up, particularly not when coming from the president. And Ronald Reagan was reelected. Things turned around, and I think the real capstone, or you know what, how I would end at that period, is the nineteen eighty four, uh, morning again election. The whole mood of America just seemed to change, and boomers at the time were coming of age with their own awakening experiences through films like The Big Chill, you know, suddenly looking back at this period with a little bit more self-awareness of where they had gone and perhaps areas where they had gone a little bit too far. And for the first time, you saw, as as we always do with the new turning, signs of, you know, the Brad Pack and all these new, you know, Gen X stars, right?
0: Alex from Family Ties. Michael J.
1: Fox. You know, yeah, exactly. The young Republican with the tie. And, you know, <laughs> people who who don't need people are the are the richest people in the world. You know, those kind of lines, you know. So you basically had a whole new coming of age persona, which is very different from boomers. You know, boomers with these ebullient, idealistic kids, you know, teaching the world to sing and the famous Coca-Cola ad. And now you suddenly had these. Well, there was a famous cover story on on Time Magazine just showing these, you know, black clad kids sort of with dazed expressions, almost traumatized expressions, not looking at each other, just sort of looking around and people wondered what happened to these kids, right? They weren't speaking up. They were just surviving. They were just taking care of themselves and the awareness of what the awakening had done to the family. And I think for Gen Xers, the you know they were the ultimate throwaway kids. You remember, during the Awakening Era, everyone was focused on themselves. Uh, you know, the GI generation was focused on their own retirement, getting out of the house. The Silent Generation was going through their incredible you know divorce wave, which was unprecedented in America, and and really had was a tremendous shock for a lot of the Gen Xers who were you know growing up as small kids. Boomers were obviously- Those small
0: kids were like the kid in Kramer versus Kramer. That was a Gen Xer.
1: Well, exactly. Kramer versus Kramer or the um, Tatum O'Neill kid, just sort of hard before her time, right? And in fact, this whole era was the era of the Childless Devil horror movie. You know, this was the Exorcist and the Rosemary's Baby and the It's Alive. Children of the Corn. (laughs) Yeah, it, it was an unremittingly negative view of childhood. Throughout the entire early childhood of the Gen X, it was really starting in the mid-1960s, extending all the way to the early 1980s, movie theaters were packed with audiences that wanted to see this image of children. And interestingly, Dimitri, it suddenly changed in the early 80s when millennials started coming along as kids, right? We suddenly rediscovered kids Everyone wanted to protect them. All these books and articles came out about how badly kids have been treated. They needed protection, they needed structure. Suddenly we had, you know, minivans designed for kids with five different ways of buckling them into their seats. You know back when Gen X was with kids, you just told them to, I don't know, put your hands in front of your face or something. you know deal with it yourself, right? And suddenly, all these child safety devices—the entire world turned child-friendly. Once boomers decided, dominating the culture as always, that you know now this was something important for them to do, is to uh, protect this new, very special generation of kids. And we saw the change too in the box office. You suddenly see saw you know three men and a baby and and parenthood mm. and baby boom. You remember <laughs> all these very cuddly baby movies and. Ten years later, it was movies about you know soccer moms and and kids inspiring their their parents to become better people. And, but again, we sometimes don't realize how this influences generations. At the time, I have a number of millennials in my company, and one thing we used to do is actually go and watch these exer child movies. You know, made you know Dazed and Confused and River's Edge and some of these really dark movies made back in the 1970s and and it brought some of them to tears. I mean, they couldn't believe their question was, didn't anyone love these kids? You know, I had to I had to assure them that Xers are doing fine. They grew up, they moved on, but they grew up and moved on differently, right? They absorbed collectively different traits. And one of them is one which millennials don't really have, but what Xers was developed was Resilience, right? Pragmatism, the ability to sort of absorb everything or anything and still move on, make do. You know, there, there's always hope. This sort of intense pragmatism and a sense of self sufficiency. You know, no one else is going to look after you. This is something that millennials don't have. I think millennials do expect someone should look after them and ought to look after them. And millennials also didn't expect to look after each other. Right. Millennials are much more individualistic in that sense. And I think it's influenced it. It's made millennials very different politically and commercially. I mean, millennials are very good at adapting to markets and tend to be contrarian investors. Millennials tend to do crowd investing. They always want to invest in the same thing. So if they all go down, at least they all go down together, right? See millennials all investing in target date funds. And they Xers have been much more comfortable being in, you know, with the fact that they're winners and losers. So this is how at a young age, we see different generational persona being developed. I think from a very early age, millennials developed a sense of, first of all, they were special, they were protected, they were optimistic about the future. And they were more peer oriented, more community oriented and more conventional. I mean, they were, they were more attached to their parents from a very early, early age, and they continue to be more attached even today, where you see record levels of millennials, even in their late 20s, early 30s, even late 30s, living with their parents, right? One of the great phenomena that we see now is this incredible renaissance of the extended family in America. This is why large homes are selling so well. Everyone wants to move into a large home where they can have their You know, grown kids, you know, living with them, which they are doing at such a high rate. We have not seen such a large share of people in their late 20s and mid 30s living with their parents since the GI generation. Isn't that interesting, right? Back in Mm. the late 30s, early 1940s, well, really just on the verge of World War II. And in many ways, they were very similar. I think a lot of us today recall those Frank Capra movies like you can't take it with you, or Mr. Smith goes to Washington with these big Victorian homes showing a lot of you know, generations living together. Well, we've reconstructed that, right? It's in the McMansion <laughs> that, that we're all living together today. But what a contrast to the 1970s, Dimitri, when Gen Xers are being raised as kids and boomers are coming of age. In the 1970s, no one wanted to live with each other. In fact, the 1970s, I say this as a demographer, Was the one decade in American history when the average number of people living in a household fell faster than any other decade in American history? You know, seniors wanted to move out to senior communities, couples were divorcing, that was mainly the silent generation, and boomers were, you know, you know, moving out and hitchhiking and going to Wheeler Ranch or some commune somewhere, right? No one wanted to live together. But again, what would you expect? Decades of budding community or developing or or nascent community versus decades of nascent individualism.
0: So, I want to, there's so much here to discuss, Neil. (laughs) And I think the most unique contribution that you make as a demographer is this overall framework that you put forward. And I don't want to lose the opportunity because we have a limited amount of time. To discuss the fourth turning that we're living through today. Because again, the title of this latest book is The Fourth Turning Is Here. For anyone who's interested in learning more about the actual demographics and their generations, besides reading your book, which I highly recommend, we also did recently an episode with Gene Twangy, who also cites your work, yours and William Strauss's work. We get much more into the generations there. So for anyone who's interested in that, That'll be in the related tab to this episode. So I want to ask you now about the fourth turning, Neil. So the way that I'm going to come at this question actually has to do with what you call precursor events. So these kind of sit somewhere, I guess they're technically in the third turning, correct? Yes. So they, they're sort of at the end of the third turning and they they foreshadow the larger crisis that is to come. And in the previous cyclum, it was presumably World War One that not only pre-shadowed, but historians would argue actually created the conditions that led to the Great Depression and eventually World War II. I've heard you say that 9-11 was that precursor event for our cyclum. What was it, You know, for someone who lived through 9-11, I mean, I was 18 years old when it happened. I was a freshman in college. Actually, I was a sophomore in college. Pardon me. I was 19. What was it about 9-11? Because it was such a definitive moment in my personal coming of age. What was it about that event that we can point to today and say that it foreshadowed what I think you have determined as the the crisis of this fourth turning which is the great financial crisis and the subsequent societal crises and challenges that we have faced and that we have yet to confront before this cycle is over what was it and could we have even known it at the time
1: well what what it was was in 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 the third turning in a period of sort of growing individualism and declining trust in big institutions or even the sense of any need for big institutions suddenly um, we had this disaster. Uh, we felt like we were under attack, and we all suddenly, you know, every indicator of patriotism and sudden trust in big institutions soared. I don't know if you recall, but for a, a year and a half after 9 11, there was an enormous kind of rally around the flag effect, right? And I think that we haven't seen this yet except, you know, within partisan camps today in America, but eventually by the crisis of the, you know, by the climax of the fourth turning, which is yet to come, we will see this return, right? And let me lay this out a little bit more in a broader context, Dimitri, because I think what you're really looking into now is what we call the sort of the morphology of a fourth turning. In other words, how does a, a fourth turning sort of progress, you know, and what stages does it go through? Right. And and this is something we we discuss. Uh, this is something certainly I I narrate all of the great fourth turnings in American history and, you know, going back sort of in in British and English history as well. And I look at them and I, I describe them as unfolding in these stages. Now, the first attribute is this thing I call a precursor. And the precursor to our current fourth turning was, was 911 that occurred, you know, you know well before the global financial crisis of 2008 which I think was the the real entry into today's fourth turning, right? I mean that's when the fourth turning actually began. A World War II was that same event for Black Thursday, October 24th, 1929 and America's entry into the last fourth turning. The Mexican-American War was the precursor for the Civil War and the um the Seven Years' War, or what we call the French and Indian War in America, was the precursor for the um, Boston Tea Party and, and the American Revolution. Now, one thing that's very interesting, and then in all those events, the nomad archetype is young adults, right? They're getting their first taste of, you know, combat or adventure or whatever it is, right? And certainly, it was the Lost Generation that came before the GIs that were the foot soldiers of World War One. It was Gen X and not millennials who were the you know the major participants as enlisted people in in nine eleven and the, the Iraq-Afghan wars that followed. And certainly they were the field grade officers. They were the, you know, captains and majors and, and a few of them maybe beginning to be colonels. But you go back and and obviously it was in the Mexican American War that you have, you know. Grant and, and Stonewall Jackson and so on and all those all those people that later became the generals of the Civil War were the the, the young officers right of the Mexican American War and it was the Liberty generation of, of of George Washington that were later the midlife leaders of the American Revolution that were the young officers of the French uh, the French and Indian War so it's a very interesting event to examine in the early sort of revealing. Of you know what was happening with the you know nomad and and prophet archetype in an earlier phase of life, but it comes and it goes, and when it's over, it's over, and we go back into the third turning because the generations have not yet aged enough to bring us to the point of the eventual entry into the fourth turning. Now, the entry into the fourth turning is what we call a catalyst, and to the last two catalysts have been economic downturns. In fact, they've been global balance sheet depressions or recessions, financial panics. We all know about the GFC, and I think we all know about the stock market crash, which rapidly became global in the fall of 1929. I think earlier catalysts, uh, such as the the election of Abraham Lincoln and, um, and the immediate um, Secession of the of the Southern states, which I think really was a catalyst in the fall of um, of 1860, and we know about the the Boston Tea Party of December of 1773, and so on, and all of these catalysts are a mood which doesn't end. That is to say, once we've entered that turning, it never turns back to the unraveling. I mean, we're in it. Trust levels fall, despondency rises. America feels terrible about itself. It feels like it's no longer in control of events. It feels like something terrible is, you know, uh, history has changed in a way that it shouldn't have. An interesting aspect, too, of the uh, precursor, Dimitri, that you mentioned is precursors coming after a period, a long period of individualism, is usually a period when absolutely no one expects anything bad could ever happen again. One of the things you remember about 9 11 was this was after everyone believed that it was the end of history, right? We believed that, you know, a Pacific world was sort of the uh, inevitable wave of the future. So that was also a sense of shock, you know, when the world trade centers went down, right? And, and I think the absolutely same sense of shock was with World War I, which similarly came after the very long period of European peace everyone believed that another big war like that was impossible and if it ever happened you know the the socialist workers would never fight for their own countries and you know we had we were all too invested in each other. We had a, all various reasons why there could never be a war like that again and so it shocked people. I think that's what the precursor has in common that sense of shock and also these these third turning wars tend to be fought with great enthusiasm but but very little patience and very often we turn on them afterwards and we regard them very negatively in retrospect.
0: So when nine eleven was happening, did you recognize it as a precursor or did you look at it and say, this is the fourth turning. It's here. This is the catalyst.
1: We knew it wasn't the fourth turning. And I remember Bill and I both being asked that question and we said, I know it looks terrible, but the generations aren't old enough. <laughs> we can't right? I mean boomers weren't yet retiring Millennials weren't yet really coming of age. You know what I mean? I mean, no one was older. And
0: indeed, the message really yeah. was, I mean, if you think about it, the message from the Bush administration was, don't worry, we got this. Exactly. We're the older generation, we got this, just go and shop.
1: And that's the other aspect I said that we have great enthusiasm, a little patience, and we remember them very badly afterwards. World War One was terribly remembered, particularly in America, you know, and we we never agreed to the Versailles Treaty. We never agreed to go into the League of Nations. We we just completely repudiated Europe. We were going to go isolationist, and we remained isolationist for a long time. I think Robert Kagan has a very good expression for World War I. He says, basically, the mood around the time when Gamaliel Harding was elected in 1920 was basically, Wilson lied and people died, right? Wilson lied and people died. Well, that's that's exactly how we looked at uh, you know nine eleven and the invasion of our, Afghanistan mm. and Iraq, right? I mean, that was that sense of disgust. Uh, we never should have been nation building in the first place. I mean, what a stupid thing we did! And we again went into this long period of of isolationism. And so again, but this is typical. Then comes, the, however, the catalyst. We enter the fourth turning. And we, we go through these events that we've just described where we enter it. And then the mood changes long term, right? You have this despondency, this, this sort of public depression, this lack of trust, this sense of disorder that can never be redeemed. And then what happens further in the fourth turning to sort of think about how the fourth turning proceeds. And, and I, I think this may be interesting to listeners because it's a little bit how we know where we're going, right? Where are we in the fourth turning? is that we enter an event which we sometimes call a regeneracy. And a regeneracy is when suddenly people find reasons to become excited and interesting again, interested again in some sort of community activity, right? We begin to band together in some new, often partisan definition of who we are. In the Great Depression, World War II, it was, I think, unquestionably the election of FDR over Hoover. No one knew who FDR was except they all knew he wasn't Hoover, right? So and and remember, you know, the Democrats had always been the the party no one ever voted for, uh, you know, after the Civil War. So they, they were sort of this, you know, we had Wilson, we had Grover Cleveland, but basically they were in, in sort of semi-elected by accidents. But we always expected Republicans to be the you know the dominant party, but suddenly we we wanted someone new. And FDR came in and he had this stirring inaugural address. He said he was going to treat this crisis like a war. He was going to take every measure possible. He was an experiment with all kinds of new policies and programs. And after the speech was over, people thought he was taking over like a dictator. And by the way, they, they didn't always mean that disapprovingly. I mean, they said that sometimes approvingly. And many of his New Deal programs were... Discussed, approved by Congress, and signed all in one day, Dimitri. I mean, that's how urgent the mood was at the time, you know, in his first hundred days, and then about, you know, a year and a half later, his second New Deal. And it was amazing that sense of um, innovation and excitement. And of course, it divided America in two, right? There were the the New Deal Democrats and and particularly the younger generation who loved him. And then there were, you know, all the Republicans who, and you know, particularly among the lost generation who didn't like what he was doing, and it divided America. Americans who were conservative saw the 1930s as the Red Decade. Americans who were progressive, who were popular front New Dealers in the 1930s saw it as the Fascist Decade. And you have to remember, it was a decade, Dimitri, in which liberal democracy and capitalism seemed no longer an option. I mean, you either had to become fascist or communist because there was no moderate option again, right? I mean, that's how divided America had become as the 1930s went forward. And I think the obvious parallel is the 2016 election contest between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, because suddenly, just like then, America was divided into two camps. We suddenly had In 2016 and then later in 2018, 2020, and 2022, we saw voter participation rates that we hadn't seen in a century. And suddenly all of America thought it was absolute vital importance that their party win. If the other party won, the nation would be irredeemably lost. I mean, that's, that's the sense of panic and partisanship and sorting now that Americans have when they approach politics. But we saw the same thing before. And I think, by the way, we see the same trends around the world. The trends we've seen over the past, you know, 10, 15 years are exactly what we saw in the 1930s. Populist authoritarians taking over increasingly governments of the world. According to, you know, V Dam and according to Freedom House, the share of, of the world's population, governed by, you know, free or democratic leaders and governments, peaked in 2007, right before the GFC, has been declining ever since. Just like the 1930s, when increasingly countries all started falling, well, a couple to communism, but most, or popular front governments, but mostly to fascism. And another thing we see in, is, is in terms of the retreat from globalism, right? Global trade as a share of global product peaked in 2007 right before the GFC it has still not regained its former level and recently it's been declining again because of the sanctions over the Ukraine invasion we saw the same thing after 1929 especially after the smoot tariff and, and obviously global recession and the dividing of the world into different zones of economic autarky exactly what we saw in the 1930s with the co-prosperity sphere and Japan and various fascist efforts to sort of divide up the world, the new emphasis on commodities, right, access to commodities. We're seeing so many of the same trends, Dimitri. But there you have it, you have the first Regeneracy. Now, many fourth turnings have more than one Regeneracy, and I, I talk about that in the book. Ultimately, the first Regeneracy peters out. Now, the Great Depression, World War II, FDR's New Deal energy, petered out after his second landslide election, unbelievable landslide election of 1936, when I don't know how many Republican senators were left in 1936. I think it was less than 20, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, something like that. But it was an amazing victory. But immediately after that, the power of his coalition began to just started stumbling and losing energy. Suddenly the public, well. Yeah, the court-packing scheme, which the public didn't like, packed the Supreme Court. You know, thinking about issues, right, becoming <laughs> again in the news today, and suddenly the public, because of the the new uh, violent sit-down strikes, which often involve violence between police and trade unions, you know, some of them influenced, you know, and newly sort of activist uh, communists who are who are out on the streets as well, the public began to turn against the unions, which was kind of new and alarming for FDR, but most of all, the entire country went back into a very severe recession, 1937, 38. In fact, by 1940, deflation was still a problem. Bond yields reached their record lows in you know the summer of 1940, and most Americans believe we still had not yet gotten out of the Great Recession, despite all of the New Deal activism. And it was at that point that FDR, who was increasingly focused on international issues, began to change his constituency. He began to give up some of his isolationist Northern uh, supporters among the Democrats to pick up Southern supporters and pull back on some of the New Deal programs that would have influenced the South. And this is an interesting turn has been much discussed. I mean, FDR was hugely dependent upon the Southern Democrats. And not only were they a very large share of his coalition in the, in the House and the Senate, but they dominated the committee leaderships. You remember, the committees are seniority. And of course, these Southern Democrats had all the seniority. So he absolutely needed the support of the Southern Democrats. He tried to get more progressive Southerners elected. In uh, 1938, he failed and so he had to get their support and it was in foreign policy they they got their support. So increasingly, he became a foreign policy president and he reoriented the energy of the New Deal toward rearmament and providentially, I mean, it was a horrifying prospect for Americans, but it was providential for FDR's leadership right around the time of the fall of France and the beginning of the Battle of Britain in the spring and summer of of 1940, suddenly American opinion began to change away from isolationism and toward the need to rearm. So we we enacted the first peacetime conscription in American history, and we started hugely rearming. And it was that rearming which you know enormous armament bills passed Congress with practically not a single dissenting vote by the fall of 1940 and the spring of 1941 the whole economy began to lift out of the recession and america began to be convinced that we needed to prepare for a struggle in which we might be the only democracy left on the earth this was nearly a year before pearl harbor and i think people don't realize that that the second regeneracy so to speak the second sort of consolidation of sort of community energy occurred before pearl harbor pearl harbor was a time we call simply the consolidation. The consolidation of a fourth turning is when the nation realizes its very survival is at stake, right? We need to win this or it will permanently alter our future in a very negative way. And that was Pearl Harbor. The last two hallmarks of a fourth turning are the climax, which came in June, July of 19. 19- 44, when we mounted simultaneous invasions in two separate parts of the world, we had the obviously the D-Day invasion in Normandy and simultaneously, we had the invasion of the Mariana Islands and the Battle of the Philippine Sea in the Pacific, an
0: extraordinary- Man, what an incredible, unbe- what an incredible un- thing un- Unbelievably, do.
1: The two largest maritime invasions any either one of them would have been historically unprecedented but the fact that America was able to do two of them at the same time and produce all the landing craft and, and all the the naval support and the logistics to make it happen is stunning to think about in retrospect right mm.
0: and so far from where we are today I mean we we you know listeners know this Elbridge Colby was on the show about a year ago and he's been pounding the table for us to focus on the pivot to China and making the case that we can't Focus on two wars simultaneously. Obviously, Joe. One of the reasons that Joe Biden pulled out of Afghanistan was again to try to focus on this pivot to Asia and on countering the the rise of China. Clearly, the public was fully behind the war in the Pacific and in Europe at the time, in a way that they aren't in this conceptual threat environment. But it's just fascinating to juxtapose the two paradigms, you know, today versus then, and what we were able to accomplish when everyone was focused on the war. And that existential threat.
1: But one thing to keep in mind with fourth turnings is how what we are when we early in a fourth turning bears no relationship than what we are when we emerge. And this is one of the big points of the book I try to emphasize a lot, Dimitri. And that is, we become truly transformed as a people in ways that we can't even imagine by the time we're at the end of it. And it's not that long a period, right? I mean, When we went into the Civil War, even after Lincoln was elected and was sworn in in March of of 1861, the end of slavery was not even on the table. No one imagined that. In fact, FDR uh, actually agreed that if the South wanted, he would support a constitutional amendment to make slavery permanent in the southern states. And the great irony, of course, is the 13th Amendment might have been the slavery amendment. Not the freedom from slavery amendment, right? But of course, the Southerners, by seceding, you know, basically nixed that option. I mean, by leaving, he put they put the the Radical Republicans in charge. Slavery still wasn't the emancipation still wasn't on the option when the war started. But once it got toward total war, right? Once the death toll started mounting, once people realized the magnitude of the struggle, well, then slavery was contraband, right? And then came the Emancipation Proclamation that was announced. Well, Lincoln needed a victory first, and they weren't getting many victories late in 1860, going into 61. But when the Battle of Antietam was over, he announced it, and it just completely changed the nature of the war because suddenly now, particularly in the, you know, triumphantly in the eyes of the radical Republicans, this was going to be a war about the end of slavery and great victory for Lincoln. It completely put an end to the efforts by Jefferson Davis to get support from England and France. Really, when the Emancipation Proclamation came out, that was the end of Southern hopes for European aid. And, you know, the story went on from there. One thing that, and I realize we have limited time here, but I would just say that one thing we talk about is that, and I talk about with all of these fourth turnings, is how they are uniquely moments. Of civic recreation in America and how we become a transformed people, and how so many of the long term policy decisions which shape the very identity of our country are made near the crisis of fourth turnings. And the reason I say that, Dimitri, is that it seems completely paradoxical to most people. I mean, if you were to ask most people, when should we make big, new, bold policy decisions, right? How to sort of transform our constitution, be different as a country? Everyone would say, "Well, let's do it on a sunny day." You know, when we're all prosperous, you know, there's no recessions on the horizon, <laughs> we have a big surplus, right? And and we'll all plan to do it in just the right way. Well, that might be how we would like it to happen, but history says that's never how it happens, right? It's the opposite. We make these huge changes in who we are as a country when our backs are against the wall and it's a cold and stormy night. Think about when one of the most catastrophic decades of American history was the 1780s, which probably was a, a miseration and poverty greater than the Great Depression, enormous loss of income you know, from, from before the war. You know, and 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 you know, a lot, of, a lot of the Tories who were, you know, actually ran plantations and commerce and so on had had left America. I sometimes tell people the number of Tories who left would be the equivalent of seven million Americans leaving today. And we actually deurbanized during that period. I mean, people couldn't even eat in the in the American towns. They went back into the country to raise food. Anyway, it was a catastrophic decade, and many people thought that the American Republic was. Was going to be stillborn, and at that period of tremendous crisis, we designed this unbelievably ambitious constitution. You know, with these Roman-sounding institutions like a Congress and a president, and you know, just all of this stuff. Are we going to? We're going we to tax people far more harshly than than Britain ever taxed the colonies, and suddenly we all agreed to it, right? Or during the Civil War when we you know suddenly had a national currency system we regulated the banks we had a an income tax system all of a sudden we were requisitioning industries and the railways we were you know we're planning the transcontinental railroad we were designing state college systems we even you know planned the first uh, you know Yosemite uh, grant and, and actually started the national park system this was all during a year when when congress felt that Washington D.C. itself might be under attack, right, at any moment from from Jubal Early and his troopers, you know, coming up the uh, Shenandoah Valley. Or think about the Great Depression. When did we legislate Social Security and plan Social Security, the cornerstone of the modern welfare state? It wasn't just Social Security, by the way. It's you know what we today call AFTC, or I guess we call it. TANF today and SSI and you know all, all of all of the panoply of state federal programs, which is sort of the contours of our welfare state, we put it into place. We designed it in 1934. We legislated 1935. This is a period when GDP was down by double digits. Americans we completely you know lost hope. Fascists were taking over increasing number of countries in Eastern and Central Europe. What in the world, Dimitri? And yet here was this new program which had you know budget projections going all the way out into the 1970s. So here's my point, is that it's in these periods when we shift from deferring problems to suddenly solving them. And it's amazing. It is counterintuitive. There are a number of other social transformations we see other than just the general move from individualism to community by the time we get to the end of the, to the crisis.
0: Well, that's what I really want to get into in the second hour with you, Neil. And I want to start that part of the conversation with one more question that I have for you about both the initial catalyst of this recent fourth turning, which you've identified as the great financial crisis in 08, as well as the regeneracy, which you've said we can see evidence for beginning with the 2016 election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And then I think that will give us a chance to really get into a discussion about where we are today, which I think is what is on most people's minds. What would it take, for example, to consolidate our societies? Would it need to be an existential threat to our survival? Or can we begin to see the early evidence of that consolidation in the preparation for a possible war with China or in the case of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And then what does a resolution to this crisis look like? And are we able to imagine what the eventual first turning of the new seculum will look and feel like? Or is that something that only the climax and resolution of a crisis can make clear? That's what we're going to talk about in the second hour. For anyone who is new to the program, Hidden Forces is listener supported. We don't accept advertisers or commercial sponsors. The entire show is funded from top to bottom by listeners like you. If you want access to the second hour of today's conversation with Neil Howe, head over to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe and sign up to one of our three content tiers. All subscribers gain access to our premium feed, which you can use to listen to the rest of today's conversation on your mobile device using your favorite podcast app, just like you're listening to this episode right now. Neil, stick around. We're going to move the second hour of our conversation onto the premium feed. If you want to listen in on the rest of today's conversation, head over to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe and join our premium feed. If you want to join in on the conversation and become a member of the Hidden Forces Genius community, you can also do that through our subscriber page. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stilianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. You can follow me on Twitter at Kofinas, and you can email me at info at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.